0: When I wrote my first book, having an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm able to share my books, fun t-shirts, more, all in my online shop. And it's so easy. All because I use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. I love how Shopify works. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10 percent of all e-commerce in the U.S. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com for the love, all lowercase. So go to Shopify.com for the love now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com/slash for the love. Let's talk lunchtime. Remember the good old days when we weren't afraid of sandwiches? The carb fear is real, you guys. Uh, So many of my friends are watching carbs, but it's tough. I mean, the best things in life have carbs, right? Hero Bread makes those same delicious favorites free of consequences or compromises. Their breads contain zero to one grams of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and they're even high in fiber. That's not all. The taste and texture are spot on. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying like a savory breakfast burrito or a mouthwatering cheeseburger. Hero Bread has it figured out. So don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. So go to hero.co and use code love at checkout. That's love at h-e-r-o dot c-o. Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker book club podcast. And if you're listening to this on our regular for the love podcast feed, welcome. This is where you get kind of a sneak peek behind the scenes of everything we do over the Jen Hatmaker book club, including our monthly podcast interview with our author of the month and it is so much fun. You guys, oh, we would love to have you in book club. You can find out all you need to know at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. All right. Before we get into our chat with our featured author this month, I want to take a little bit of time to just thank you and honor you and actually love you for still being a part of this book club, right? And this, I'm grateful that you're here. I know that our choice last month just stirred up a lot in the community. And I so appreciate you being transparent in your feedback about this. That matters to me. It matters to the team. We listened to every word. We had deep conversations about our own personal best practices moving forward. And so we hope that we can show you all that this community is meant to foster growth an understanding and a safe place for each of us. That is our hope. That is our goal. And anytime we miss the mark, we approach that with humility and gentleness. And that's just what community does. Community goes through bumps too, right? Not just the high parts, but the the hard parts too. And I really appreciated our, our little crew. And so with that said, I think that you're going to be super happy to hear this conversation about our april book club pick the lost apothecary i i read this book last year and i knew right away this is a book clubby book it's mystery it's drama it's murder it's love it's longing it's history it's intrigue it's like a book club's dream honestly. And so I was so looking forward to this month because I knew that our community would love it. I am so excited to introduce you to Sarah Penner and her debut novel. This was her debut, you guys, The Lost Apothecary. She was actually inspired by a lecture by author Elizabeth Gilbert, And thus began writing in 2015 and enrolled in her first online creative writing class. Isn't that a fun little backstory? So with travel and history being two of her key passions, she was literally mudlarking in London when she was inspired to write her first novel in 2019. Like what is mudlarking? if you haven't read the book? Well, it's actually been around for hundreds of years and it involves essentially digging through muddy areas to find lost items of value. But while visiting the river in London, Sarah like donned her old tennis shoes and blue latex gloves to explore like all these hidden treasures deep in the river mud. And while mudlarking, she came across a mid 17th century apothecary jar. And just like that, the idea for the lost apothecary was born. So, I mean, isn't that a great, a literal inspiration to the beginning of the book and the, really its whole center point. I love talking to Sarah, you guys, she's a really interesting person to interview. She's lively and connected. And she had so many interesting things to say about her characters and why she wrote them as she did. And some of the choices that she made, some of the things she both chose to tell us and some of the things she held back, which were questions that we had in our community. We talk about the ending, we talk about what's next. And so I was enchanted and you're going to be too. I'm so pleased to share this conversation with author extraordinaire, Sarah Penner. Sarah Penner. Welcome to the podcast. I am just delighted to meet you.
1: Thank you, Jen. I'm so delighted to meet you. Um, The honor is all mine and I'm super excited
0: to chat with you today. For sure. I picked up your book. I think it was recommended to me. I I actually can't remember what my front door was to it. And I'm reading it and I'm like, wait a minute. Poison women, apothecary, intrigue, death. I'm like, this is a book club book. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in there. (laughs) I mean, it is packed with the juice. And so it's been fun to have it in book club at this point, while you and I are recording, it's only the midway point of the month and everybody got your book in their box at the beginning of the month, but most people sat down, powered right through it. Like it's hard to put down. Yeah.
1: Yeah, That's I I purposely paced it that way. I mean, I tried and most chapters on a cliffhanger of sorts. So that's good to hear. I think that that contributes a lot to the pacing.
0: Yeah, it does. And I have a million things to say about your structure and how you wrote it, but even like giving us the back and forth between history and current day, just, it just tugged the story right along. And, and I found myself really like invested in what happened in both places. Like yes. right when one ended and we went to the other one, I'm like, oh. And then Good. I'm lost again. I'm immersed again in, the, in that great. set of characters. Okay. Let's start here. So The Lost Apothecary, writing this novel, it had to have been fun. Of course, we've got Nella, which is such a unique creative character. Just this, this female apothecary in the 18th century London. I mean, this is a really specific character and I love her. Like I love her. Eliza's my favorite. We'll get to Eliza, but I love her. And this well of knowledge from like homeopathic and like earth-based stuff. Okay. Here's my first question. How did Nella come to you as Nella's creator? How was Nella born in your brain? And then I'd like to hear a little bit about, honestly, the the research process that you most certainly have had to have gone through um, to develop her.
1: Absolutely. So in many ways, Nella, the apothecary, was the seed of the idea for the entire story. And I worked in finance for 13 years. I no longer do. I'm now a full-time writer. But during my corporate America years, I traveled often to London. And one of my favorite things about the city of London is how there are all of these little secret kind of hidden back alleyways that are cobblestoned or brick and kind of tucked in these crevices between these really old buildings. And when I first sat down to sort of draft up this story, I thought how enchanting would it be to have this kind of older apothecary who works in a secret shop at the back of one of these alleyways. And I knew that I wanted there to be something sinister about her because I didn't want to write a cozy mystery. I didn't want to write a book where customers are coming in to get remedies for stomach aches or headaches. I wanted there to be something much more serious going on with her business behind that closed door. So really, that's what I envisioned from day one was this little tiny shop lined with you know, the walls lined with pretty glass vials and all sorts of cool vessels and containers. And I kind of pictured her hunched over a table, like grinding down herbs and maybe something simmering on the fire, almost a little bit like a witch over her cauldron. And so that was really my, my inspiration was that vision. And then to your point exactly about the research, you know, I have no formal training or knowledge of poisons or medicine or anything like that. But I've always loved, just in my personal life, I've always loved this idea of herbal remedies. So, for instance, if I have nausea, I'm going to go to fix a cup of ginger tea before I go reach for the Pepto Bismol. So, I love herbal teas. I love essential oils. I love cooking and gardening. So, a lot of these things kind of lent themselves already to a book about an apothecary, but it was the poison piece that I really had to research and dig into. And so my bookshelves here are lined with <laughs> books on poison. Poison. Yes. Yeah. Um, most of which are um, plant origin, but some, you know, some animal origin as well. And in fact, the little green beetle on the cover of the book That's a very poisonous cantharides beetle. And so that was interesting to learn about. So I study a lot of poisoning homicide cases in the 19th and 20th century and very familiar with the whole spectrum of them.
0: That is so interesting. I mean, I can only imagine that once you started your research, bits of the plot line started probably rising up for you, right? Were there any moments in the book that you literally like plucked from a piece of research and went, oh, I, I have to include this like somewhere in the story.
1: Yeah. The number one thing that comes to mind, you know, I just mentioned that beautiful green beetle. beetle, So what I learned was that this beetle through my research, I learned that the, this beetle is, has a toxin in it and it's an aphrodisiac, but also very toxic and dangerous. And so women in these 17th century brothels would use this and toxin, you know, as part of their work and then for sinister intent as well. So I knew when I saw that, that I had to put it in the book and the beetle actually ends up playing a very important role to the story. I won't give away any spoilers, but that was one thing that the second I came across that I said, this little green beetle is going in my book.
0: Yeah. I love that part of the story. Like down to just how even labor intensive it was to kind of harness its poisons. And before we get to a couple of the other characters, I want to talk for one more second about Nella, because you mentioned this, you said this word a second ago, and I wanted to talk to you about your choice to write her as you did in that her mom, of course, her mother was her best teacher, but her mother was a healer. Right, only used her knowledge for good, for healing, for remedies. And then you give us Nella, of course, who, for reasons that you explained to us halfway through the book, began, she's obviously creating poisons for women who are looking to kill off oppressive, abusive, exploitative men in their lives. And so you said a minute ago, the word sinister, because as it goes on, and even as you we're privy to a lot of Nella's internal dialogue, you know, you let us know her thoughts, it becomes increasingly difficult, kind of, to determine if she is, is she a hero? Is she a villain? Is it something in between? I don't even think she knows. And so I am curious about your decision to set her up in kind of an ambiguous moral space. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, we learn on the first page that Nella is a serial poisoner. I mean, in the very first chapter, we see her at her table putting, kind of plotting what this next poison is going to be. So we know she's a killer from the get go. And my goal throughout the story was not to necessarily justify her actions and what she's helping women do, but to give the reader insight into her internal invisible wounds that are driving her to do this behavior. And the reality is, you know, we learn that in her younger years, she suffered some really serious betrayals that impacted her physically and emotionally and mentally for the rest of her life and i i kind of present almost a worst case scenario in terms of what a, a lover could do in terms of betrayal so my goal in showing that scene which is about midway through the book is to introduce readers to why she's so aggrieved and you know making these decisions that she's making but also i think that all of us as readers we are morally gray ourselves none of us are perfect all of us make mistakes or do wrong things some more wrong than others but we all have a motive and a reason and kind of a background that brings us to that decision so i think that in that way hopefully it's slightly relatable if not even a little bit encouraging to readers to know that at the end of the story i i don't think nella is a hero or a villain i think she's somewhere in the middle and that's how all of us are really none of us are heroes and none of us are villains we're all kind of somewhere in the middle
0: that's right. Before we get to Caroline, I want to talk about Eliza because I love her. I think she's my favorite character in the book for a lot of reasons. Oh, this is just a side question. I have no idea if you've ever, I was like, why do I love her so much? Why am I so drawn to this story? Why do I love this book so much? It is reminiscent of one of my favorite all-time series, which is Alan Bradley's Flavia Luce series. I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet Flavia. He has, as the center point of his entire long, I mean, he's got 10 or 12 books in it, an 11-year-old precocious girl whose specialty is chemistry and poisons. Wow. Okay. And she is hilarious and henri, but also innocent. And I'm like, oh my goodness, Eliza reminds me a little bit about Flavia. And I love this kind of character because you gave us this sort of, smart, resourceful, plucky girl, but she's got this little innocence to her too. Like she does not understand that she's having a period. She thinks she's haunted, you know, like you've given us a 12 year old thinking 12 year old things. And I loved her. How in the writing process, did you come to Eliza? When, when did you know sort of the sidekick was going to be a little girl? So in
1: true Eliza fashion, she was the third and final point of view character, and she kind of interrupted my, my plans a little bit. And throughout the book, she has a tendency to show up where she's not invited, She's stubborn, precocious, honorary like you said. And so it's funny that that's also, also how she ended up in the story. Because the reason I decided to give her, you know, her own point of view is because in the very beginning we see nella you know putting together this poison and then we meet eliza eliza comes to the shop to buy this poisonous egg and i asked myself what scene does the reader most want to see and experience next and i i knew that they were going to want to follow eliza home and see her crack that egg into a hot pan and then put it on a plate to give it to her employer. And I knew I didn't want to tell the reader that scene secondhand. I didn't want it to be through dialogue, you know, later with Nella. I wanted the reader there in the kitchen next to Eliza as she's making this man's breakfast. So that was when I decided to kind of experiment a little bit with her voice. And to answer your question about, you know, why a 12 year old girl. I wanted to surprise the reader. So when we first see that Nella is pulling together this poison, we envision that it's, you know, a woman maybe in her twenties or thirties, who's coming to seek vengeance on an employer, but what they don't expect and what Nella definitely didn't expect was to peek out that door and see a child. And we've seen Nella's reaction to that in the book where she thinks there must be some mistake because there's no way that this little girl, you know, it could be her wanting to buy this poison. So I wanted to surprise the reader, but also Eliza. It's funny. You say she's your favorite character. Many people say that. And she's my Do favorite they? character. Yeah. Is she? Uh. Yeah. She's my favorite character. Yeah. She's such a breath of fresh air. She is. And you know, we've talked about how Nella is so vengeful and grieving But Eliza is not. She's inquisitive. She's kind of starry-eyed. She sees the world through these rose-colored glasses and believes in magic. And so she's just a breath of fresh air. And I think refreshing for the reader when the book gets dark, you know, Eliza often comes in with her funny little comments. And then as the writer, too, of the story, I always enjoy kind of taking a step back from Nella's darkness and retreating into Eliza's lightness.
0: Yes, it was it was like literary relief to kind of have her in intermittent between so much of the sort of dark stuff and and I appreciated that you made her pretty sturdy even though she is young and innocent. You made her sturdy. Otherwise I would have worried about her the whole time. I would have worried about her in that dark world killing people. And instead she's got this sort of internal fortitude that was a relief. I was really glad she had it. Cause then I thought, okay, she can handle all this. We're not going to have to worry about, she can be out there and pluck the Beatles. And so I love the way you wrote her. I absolutely love supporting amazing small businesses. They are out here following their passions and talents and doing the work and creating things. But if you're a small biz owner or you love one, you know, it can be tough. And it can be harder than ever to stay profitable because every single penny counts, right? If you are shipping a bunch of stuff all the time, this might be a good moment to look at stamps.com. When my team and I shifted over to stamps.com, we did so because of the convenience factor, because you can say goodbye to the post office and have access to all the USPS and UPS services you need, literally right from your laptop. The big bonus though, was how much money we've since saved. When you use stamps.com to mail and ship, you get access to exclusive discounts and great rates on shipping, literally to the tune of up to 86% off. So whether you're an office sending invoices, an Etsy shop, selling from Shopify or Amazon or eBay or whatever, stamps.com has it handled. All you need, is your computer and printer, no special supplies or equipment. So you'll start mailing and shipping with stamps.com and keep more money in your pocket every day. You guys sign up with promo code for the love for a special offer that includes a four week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale, and no long term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code for the love. I want to talk a little bit about Caroline and this modern story, you know, which is where, of course, all of us as your readers can mostly relate. Walking through a common and familiar heartache, you know, you handed her a a story that a lot of women understand, me included. I appreciated that because we were pulling for her the whole time. But I've so enjoyed her race and intention back toward her own. Self, I love that. I loved that that was sort of the center of the thing. Like not just how can I repair this or what do I need to do, but more like, who am I and where am I? I really appreciated that as her work. And so I'd love to hear you talk about Caroline a little bit and how you envisioned her and if she kind of came across exactly the way you thought initially, did any of the things that she wanted to say or do surprise you along the way? Because I know how novelists are. Sometimes your characters just, you're, you're almost like a medium, (laughs) you know, for what they want to say or do. And you channel where they're going. Did anything about her ever catch you by surprise? So Caroline in many ways is representative of, I think
1: this, interior that so many of us have where we grow up enjoying a certain hobby or passion or pastime, but then the real world hits and we have to pay our bills and we have to keep a roof over our head and and make our families work and happy and, and everything coordinated. And so often those passions that we have get kind of lost. or in Caroline's example, they get packed away in a box and set in the basement and never revisited. And so I, one of the most important questions that Caroline asks herself throughout the story is what is the difference between happiness and fulfillment and that they're two very separate things. And I hope that readers, when they see her asking that question, that they pause and ask themselves the same thing, because my finance background is a perfect example. I was always perfectly happy. You know, I made good money. I had great coworkers, a very flexible schedule. But I went to bed most nights kind of unfulfilled creatively. And I thought back to what what in my childhood did I enjoy? And I always loved writing and just stringing together interesting words and sentences. And so I decided to pursue that and found happiness and fulfillment at that point. And so I think that whether it's learning a language, reading or studying something new, playing music, repairing a relationship, there are so many of us that are happy on the outside, but there's something unfulfilled inside. And so that's what I, you know, really wanted Caroline to bring forth is her own journey to discover that. Now it happens in a very compact time frame. She's in London for just a few days. Of course, they're a very transformational few days, and she's going through a lot of trauma with her marriage, but I think it's, it's a great opportunity for us to ask that question as it relates to anything about Caroline kind of surprised me because you're exactly right. These characters tend to take on a life of their own and we act almost as a conduit to get their thoughts and actions onto the page. And sometimes those can be a lot different than we expected. You know, I would say that midway through the story, and since, since we can talk about spoilers here She finds herself in kind of this legal dilemma all of a sudden where it appears that she might have poisoned her husband who also recently had an affair. So she has a decent motive to have poisoned him. And so we kind of see her try to cleverly work her way out of this dilemma that she's found herself in. And she does that in large part by leaning on a woman who has become a good friend. And that's Gaynor, the librarian, who is really kind of a side character in the whole book. But so many readers have commented on the special relationship between Gaynor and Caroline. And Gaynor basically helps get her, untangle her from this sticky situation she's in. And the the two women have only known each other for a few days, but I think it's representative of The fact that sometimes we can meet someone and just form an instant friendship, sisterhood, connection, whatever you want to call it. And those can be the people that are most impactful in our lives. We don't need to only rely on these friends that we've had our whole lives. Like sometimes the people that we need the most are just right there in, in, you know, in near vicinity. So that was kind of a fun surprise that unfolded for me as the story, you know, as I worked on the story was this really interesting and close dynamic between Gaynor and Caroline.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that too. And I love that you handed them a shared passion around history and, and artifacts and historical documents and maps that, and I may have this wrong, but in general are typically assigned to men that kind of fascination and work and expertise. And I loved that you had them both located inside kind of a male dominated field as experts. And I want to talk about betrayal. This is obviously a central theme in the lost apothecary. Our main characters have all experienced it, all of it. And in different ways, but all at the hands of of men, and then of course they respond to their trauma, like you just mentioned, very differently as do we all like, again, you have handed us a really common trauma that so many women can relate to. And I even just survey my own personal life, like my experience and even the close people closest to me, cause I can't throw a rock and hit, not hit somebody that this is not a Piece of their story and look at how we responded all wildly different. Like, and so I think I would just like to hear you talk a little bit more about your understanding really of betrayal on a woman's heart and our varied responses to it. Like non-judgmentally, like I don't judge Nella for killing people. (laughs) Like I probably should like I probably should, that should probably be frowned upon, but I'm like, listen, she was done wrong and in an irreversible, sad way. And so anyway, I just kind of want to hear you talk about that theme throughout. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I think betrayal as a whole is part of the human experience. And one of the, most enjoyable things about writing this book was I was able to in telling two timelines, you know, we've got 200 years apart, these two stories, I was able to compare and contrast how things were different. And one of the main things that was the same between the two timelines is this idea of the human experience and how we all are hurt by people that we love. And 200 years from now, nothing will have changed. That will still be, people will still be betrayed or hurt or lied to or what have you. What's different though, between especially Caroline and Nella is how they handle those betrayals and what society and their respective cultures permit them to do. So Nella and the the women that she sees in her little hidden shop don't have many options available to them. So you could not in 1791, leave your husband, you were his property and without his support financially, you would be on the streets and your children possibly as well. And you could not make any financial or reproductive decisions for yourself. You could not go to school I mean, everything was was kind of insulated for these women, and that insulation was their spouse. So we see these women who feel like they have no other options available to them go to Nella, and this is their sort of only and final option: is to rid their lives of this man who has hurt them or betrayed them or what have you. But the amazing thing is, then two hundred years later, in present day London. We see all of the options that are available to Caroline, and she's actively choosing or not choosing based on what's available to her. So, you know, we see her considering a different school option. We see her considering a different career. We see her questioning her marriage. We see her taking birth control, all of these things that that were not available to women 200 years ago, she is now capitalizing on and and using to her advantage and benefit and able to handle her betrayal and her vengeance possibly in a much more productive manner.
0: Mm. I love that. I like hearing you talk through that, the differences between their options. Thus Caroline was not reduced to having to kill people. She had sideways momentum. Another theme that you that was a kind of thread throughout, which again is also ubiquitous to the human experience, particularly the female human experience is this desire for children. We obviously see Nella. This is her deep pain. Like this is the, this is the root of her anguish. Then we see, of course, Caroline wishing for a baby, of course, and sort of in the questioning space of am I what then what? And then even like with Lady Clarence, I mean, we see the same loss and sadness and almost just driving you to madness. This hunger to be a mom, to be have a baby. And so I'm curious why you chose that theme to thread throughout all the layers of our characters and our timeframes.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, motherhood and particularly seeing each of our three characters, Eliza has just hit puberty. So motherhood is just the tip of the iceberg, even something that, you know, may be coming into her world soon. Then we see Caroline, she's smack dab in the middle of her child childbearing age where this is very much an active decision that she's making. And then we see Nella on the tail end of it. She can't have children for age and other reasons. And she's kind of reflecting back on what that looked like. So I wanted to show what this longing looks like for a lot of women who want children. And the irony is that I am child-free by choice, my husband and I, So it was kind of an exploration of like this longing that in many ways I can't even relate to, but that's one of the beautiful things about being an author of fiction is you get to invent scenarios. But I know so many people close to me and in my life, well, most, most of the women in my life are mothers. And I've seen women who long for children and can't have them or who have suffered child loss or what have you. And so I wanted to kind of portray that across the spectrum of these different life phases that the three point of view characters are in. And motherhood, I think, you know, we talked earlier about what is different and what is the same in these two timelines the parenthood and motherhood is absolutely a universal theme that applies to the human experience and will forever. So it was just yet another way to approach this topic and show how things might have been different then versus Mm. now.
0: Mm. So good. One more question for me. And then I've got a couple from our book club members. I really loved, I found this like a tender inclusion The logbook, the care in which every single person was recorded, how many times Nella let us know that the names of these women mattered and she would preserve them even at her own peril, like even though she was essentially building a bit of evidence against her, of course, and then even her decision not to get rid of it at the end, which would have been smart that had have been a smart thing. Burn the evidence. There's no tracing it back to her really. And, and yet she wanted to preserve the existence of the women. I just, I think something is lovely there about knowing people's names that would have been like lost in oblivion, of course, and for whom there would be no record and no history. And that was a tender part of Nella that I was really drawn to, even amidst everything about her that was so harsh and rigid and difficult. So I think I just want to lobby that over to you about your decision to write the logbook the way that you did.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's yet another way that Nella is very nuanced because we see to her the importance of recording the names of these women and what they were in her shop for. That logbook also serves an important role in the story because we're able to see some of the other clients that Nella has serviced over the years and her mother as well. So we learn about the baby that had the scalded burn, you know, on him and what her mother did to treat that. So when she's explaining to Eliza why she wants to make these entries more legible and and why it's so important to record the names, that's really where we're introduced to Nella's belief that because she serves mostly, middle and lower class women, she realizes that their names are not going to be recorded in any history books. And they're not going to be on these genealogy charts that the monarchy or the very wealthy, you know, might, might find themselves on. So she wants to preserve their memories some way. And even if their names are nowhere else, at least they're in her book and valued by her. So, and then of course, As a device in the story as well, this is ultimately the logbook that Caroline finds and kind of introduces some of the mystery of the story. Personally, I've always loved old ephemera and old books. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was an antiquarian book fair here in St. Petersburg, Florida, where I live. And I was there and there's so many beautiful old records. And I find myself, you know, even in the next book that I'm working on, I find that I can't help but have a few old documents that have some something kind of mysterious handwritten on them. And it's just something that I think will continue to pop up in my books.
0: I love that. I think that's so fascinating. I also am just enamored with old records, old books, particularly when it's in somebody's like handwriting, yes. like You know, no one's gonna remember us in a hundred years. And so just it's kind of this opportunity to remember somebody. And there were whole lives going on at the time. Okay. All right, Sarah, I've got a couple of questions for you from members. Here's the first one. This This is from Jill Granberry. She said, keeping the secrets of others and not telling others our secrets is a recurring theme in the book. How do you, Sarah, approach secrets in your own life? Like, yeah. Wow. That's
1: a deep question. I, in general, try to keep as few secrets about myself as possible because I think secrets are heavy. I mean, you know, the deepest, darkest stuff that I would never share aloud goes in my journal, which, you know, my husband and my best friends have been told to just burn it unread if anything ever happens to me. There's not a lot there. I mean, Uh I, I feel very fortunate that I can share most of of my real heart with my husband and bounce ideas off of him. I'm lucky to be surrounded by so many wonderfully supportive female friends as well. So I don't have a lot of secrets. That said, I believe that vulnerability fosters connection. And so I think whether it's on the giving or receiving end of secret telling it's important to have someone that you can share those deep truths with because often people will say, "Well, I have that same secret. I have that same feeling that I've been scared to share." But when all else fails, there's always the journal that you can really put anything
0: down. Always. She keeps them all. <laughs> she keeps them this all is from Christy Wilson. Sarah, did you entertain a version where the bottle wasn't thrown back into the river?
1: So funny. Readers hate that Caroline throws the vial back. Is that right? (laughs) I've even thought about recording like a YouTube video to explain why she does this. So she has, you know, I think of myself and if I were in Caroline's shoes at the end of the story, she has two options. She can either take the vial home with her and set it on a mantle to collect dust, or she can throw it back into the river, knowing that this vial changed her fate. Changed Eliza's fate. And with the possibility and the open door, then that maybe that vial will be found someday by another woman who needs help and her fate will be changed too. So I love the cyclical nature of storytelling and how often the end arcs back to the beginning. And so for me, it felt so much more. Selfless and wholesome and full of possibility for her to throw that vial back in rather than take it home to sit on a shelf.
0: I love that. There's always a reason. A novelist has a reason for every choice she makes. And sometimes you have to defend it to angry readers, which is hilarious. If they want a different ending, they can sit down and write a different novel. I'm just teasing. I too have questioned my novelist sometimes like, but why did he have yes. to die? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is an interesting question. And I also found this juxtaposition innovative because of course we see Eliza being kind of smitten really by magic right so over with Nella we have all earth and home remedies and herbs and of the earth right and so then Eliza brings in this sort of like supernatural voodoo you know layer to it which is different and so Kristen Abby says I'm fascinated by the ending of the magic book, truly saving both Nella and Eliza. Up until the end of the book, Nella was all about herbs and home remedies. I was surprised that the concoction that Eliza made actually saved both of the women. And so what was your thoughts around including magic and spells? Yes,
1: this is a subgenre known as magical realism. And magical realism, which we see interwoven through a lot of fiction actually, the Night Circus is a really good one, a good example by Aaron Morgenstern. It's where different things happen. And this this throughout the entire story of the Lost Apothecary. The reader and the characters both are supposed to ask themselves, is what just happened the result of magic or real life? That's where we get magical realism. So Eliza, you know, we kind of see as the reader through much of the story, we're like, oh, sweet Eliza, she believes in magic. That's cute. You know, we know that that's not real though, because, you know, that's magic. But then at the end of the story, we see several things very fortunate and unlikely happen that may or may not be the result of this special tincture that she brewed. And that is really when the reader is supposed to ask themselves, Did the tincture save Eliza from her fall or was she just having a lucky day? Did, did it really save Nella's life? Or is that reference at the end of the story about Nella counseling Eliza to this day is, does that maybe mean Nella's spirit or ghost? So those questions are purposely not answered. And what I always tell, because book clubs are constantly asking, you know, did Nella survive or did she actually die? Like what really happened here? And I always tell people if I, as the author, wanted you to know, I would explicitly state what had happened. The questions that are there at the end, I mean, another very common question I get is what caused Tom Pepper's death, which we learn about in the very last chapter. And I say again, if I wanted you to know what the circumstances were in more detail, I would have simply written a few extra sentences and clarified that for the reader. So the side note or the extension of all of this is that I do someday fully intent on writing a sequel to the lost apothecary and it's going to be eliza's story so it's going to kind of pick up where her story ends and then we'll be introduced more to the love story between she and tom pepper and then learn more about some of these unanswered questions in the lost apothecary
0: Okay, I love this. You're going to crack up because I had two questions left. And I'm just going to hear here, here my last two questions from Alice Moore. I'm wondering why you chose to have Eliza's husband die so young. The last one, Jennifer Mackey. Have you thought of making a second book to follow this one? Okay, answered, yes. asked and yeah. answered. We're <laughs> thrilled to hear it. Wrapping it up here. First of all, we know that our favorite writers are also readers. So I'm just curious if you have any books that you are reading right now that you love or that you have recently read that you loved or even just an old time favorite.
1: I was prepared for this question. The One that I'm reading right now is I capture the castle by Dodie Smith. This is a, I don't, have you ever heard of this or read it?
0: No. Mm -mm.
1: It's about a young girl. I'm not very far into it, but it's about a young girl in a castle. Her family is very poor and we're going to find out what happens. And it's really beautifully narrated. And she reminds me a little bit of Eliza. So I really like that book. I capture the castle. And then something quite a bit different. This book comes out May 17th. This is Bloomsbury Girls by Natalie Jenner. Her debut was the Jane Austen Society, huge yeah. international yeah, bestseller. Yeah. And then this is her second one. And this is set in a fictional bookshop in post-war London. And it's about these women who come together to save and take over a bookstore.
0: Oh, those are all my favorite themes.
1: Yes. It's the book lover's dream. Anyone who loves just stepping into an old bookstore and kind of hear the, the bell jingling on the door. And then all of these like
0: books, I mean, who of us doesn't love that? That is very much the vibe in this story. Okay. I love it. Thank you for those recommendations. Both of those are right up my alley. Like all you had to say is the lead character in that first one reminds you of Eliza. I'm like, then I'll love it last. What are you working on right now? You mentioned a second ago, i where the thing I'm working on right now. So are you able to talk about it? Yeah. Yeah, so my second book was announced just a few weeks ago.
1: It's called The London Seance Society, and it takes place in Victorian London, and it's essentially a ghostly whodunit where two women, one of whom is a very famous internationally known spiritualist, she and her understudy traveled to London to take on a very high-profile murder case and find themselves kind of embroiled in an ongoing crime. So it's very much like a taking down the patriarchy type story. I believe it's coming out in April of 2023. So about a year.
0: Okay. Fun. I can't wait to read it. I love the I love the plots you concoct. They're so like juicy and intriguing and Okay. Listen, thank you so much for coming on today. We have, have, and are thoroughly enjoying the lost apothecary and It is exactly what we love to read inside of our book club. It's kind of universally liked. It's just so enjoyable and it's so interesting and there's nuance in it. It's complex. It's not one note. You don't make it too easy for us. We have to work for some of it and absolutely enjoying it. And so sign us all up for your next book. Like we'll be in line and can't wait to see it. But anyway, Sarah, I'm so happy to have met you. Well done. You keep writing. I'm so happy you left finance. Yes,
1: (laughs) I know more time now to write. But yes, thank you, Jen. This has been such a pleasure to be here. And I'm so thrilled to have had the chance to talk to you.
0: Absolutely.
1: Have a great weekend. All right, you too.